Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. It's been mentioned we had our, our men's retreat this last weekend and, and we were hanging out up at the state park in Lewis County and, and just having a good time as guys. Uh, Mike Murray took the first session for teaching and then uh, Corey took the last session for teaching, which meant they were stuck with me for the middle session there. And I was uh, starting to share with them and, and then I was preparing for it. I, I found myself like back in Genesis again and and if you've been around renewal for any length of time, you know that I'm, I'm kind of stuck in Genesis. Um, and we're doing the book of John right now. So I don't even know why I'm talking about Genesis, but, uh, but we're going to be <laughs> talking about Genesis a little bit today because I'm just stuck there. And I was explaining at the retreat because I felt some obligation to explain to these people why they would come to retreat, just to hear the same old things about Genesis again. I was explaining to them that I've been living in my life a reality, I think for the first time, you know, all I, I grew up in church and and I've listened to people say things about how deep the scriptures are and how there's an infinite wealth of, of wisdom to be gained and new revelations to have. And and isn't it wonderful how you can read the same verse over and over again and maybe come away with something new at some point. And, and people have always told me that that was true. And and I believed it to be true, but I'm living in a season right now where I'm really experiencing it and, and experiencing it in, in like the first couple of books of the Bible. And so um, so I'm, I'm stuck there a lot. But um, to set the stage for for what we're talking about today, I just want to remind you that in the story of Genesis that we have a, an account presented to us where God creates everything and it's good. He creates a space for humanity to live in, and it's good and wonderful. He places them in a garden, and he invites them to cultivate that garden and to rule over the creation with him and, and essentially be his human partners in his divine mission to, to fill his creation with his goodness and his character and, and to reveal his character in creation. And then in Genesis chapter 3, you have a story of humanity falling away from this purpose. And, and after they've disobeyed God and they've fallen away from the purpose of, of working with him to fill the world with his goodness, there, there's this account of them hearing the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day or in the breeze of the day. And they are terrified. They're terrified in this moment as they hear the sound of God approaching because they've disobeyed him and they're, they're worried about what is he going to do? Why has he come and what is he going to do? Um, anyhow, they end up being banished from the garden and and god sends a uh, like this mighty angelic being called a cherubim to to stand guard over the way back to the garden and, and the tree of life because god says i don't want them to eat from this tree of life and be stuck in this fallen state for all time and so they're outside of the garden they're now living in a hostile and, and wild world where they're meant to try to scratch out a living from the surface of the earth and and not only that, but for the first time, humanity is also facing death. It's they're, they're facing this new thing that is going to happen where at some point their bodies are going to shut down and they're going to die. 
And so that's the state that humanity finds themselves in. And the rest of the scriptures are a story about God working within the context of this fallen humanity and this broken and hostile world, working within all of that for a plan to restore humanity to himself, to redeem creation, to bring creation and humanity back into a restored place where there will be a sort of a garden again where humanity will live with God and, and filling the, the world, the universe, with, um, with his goodness. And the story is about the path of getting back to that, the way that God designs to get back to, 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 to see that restoration fully realized. Um, and I was thinking about paths and, and doors, and, and with our particular house that we live in, the, the floor plan is set up uh, in such a way that uh, for many years, most of the years we lived there until I added a door, you had to go through our garage to get to our backyard. And we have a really nice backyard. It's large. It's flat. It's great for having people over and hanging out in. Uh, but they had to walk through our garage to get there. And our garage looks a lot probably like your garage, except for it's painted in pink paint. So it's one step worse than your garage. But our garage is full of just stuff, stuff that you acquire over time. You know, I have a couple of workbenches, and they're usually just piled high with things. They're not really workbenches so much as shelves to store my things. And, um, and so I, I've, I've never had a huge problem with people walking through my mess to get to my backyard. But there are members of my family who have been kind of had an ongoing concern about this, that wouldn't it be nice if we could get to the backyard without our friends having to crawl through our, our mess. And so, um, but for a period of time, there was no other way. If you wanted to enjoy the lavish comforts of our hospitality in our backyard, you had to go through our mess to get there. There was just no other way to get there. And, and when we're looking at the way that God has designed back to his redemption, although it might take twists and turns that maybe we don't like at times, or we might have to crawl. He has to, you know, guide it through our messes at times. It's the way. It's it's the only way. There's the way that he has designed to get back, and um, and you're kind of you're kind of stuck with it. I don't think God's going to remodel the universe and put in a new way. I think he's pretty committed to the one that he's designed. Uh, so we're in John chapter ten today, and Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees about. This, this gate or this way, this necessary gate that has to be walked through uh, to get back to redemption. And so as you're, as you're turning your Bibles to chapter 10 of, of the book of John, uh, just to give you some context, these, these last few chapters have been all about these, these long and ongoing conversations that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And, and the Pharisees are struggling to understand what he's talking about. And they're struggling to get it as, as they sort of always do. Um, but I, you know, I, I teaching through the book of John chapter by chapter and, and moving on. And, you know, you're getting to chapter 10 and it's like, he's still talking to the Pharisees. This is crazy. Why is he still talking to these guys? And, and I had a bit of a, a revelation this week that he's still talking to them because he just loves them so much. And I think in... In Christian culture, like the villains in the gospel story are the Pharisees, right? Like they're the bad guys. And it's really, really easy for me to trash on them and, and to, you know, criticize them. And yet I, you know, you have a realization this week that, wow, Jesus 
is patient with them as well. And that begins to pull on like a little bit of my conscience or my heart, an area of my life where I'm like, okay, I've been so quick to come down hard on these Pharisees for years. And it's kind of fun to have a villain in scripture that you can talk about and criticize. But, um, but that's just not the way that God looks at his, at his creation. It's not the way that he looks at his sons and daughters. And so um, I was a little convicted by that. Anyhow, uh, let's pray before we start reading. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be together today, to read it together, to study it together. Uh, we thank you for the revelation that your Holy Spirit brings to each one of us, a unique perspective that offers insight to the larger body of Christ. And we just pray that you would help us to, um, to, to capture every bit of value that might be in uh, the perspectives that will be shared today, uh, the, the ideas that will be shared today. Um, help us to capture every bit of value that's there and, and use it to work inside of us to make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. This is very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. But the one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. How do we know who's legitimate in the sheep pen and who's not? Well, who came in by the gate and who climbed over the wall. How do we know the shepherd is legitimate? Because he came through the gate. He walked through the necessary door. He didn't invent another way. He went right through the door that was there. If you think about the shepherd, and Jesus says in this passage, he's the shepherd, and, and you think about the necessary door that he walked through in order to, to be the shepherd, to meet with the sheep, you, you have to at some point arrive at the story of the cross, right? That for Jesus to fulfill and be the shepherd that he was sent to be, he, he had to walk through a necessary door that is, is death on a cross. There was something necessary about that part. And, and so we'll get back to that in just a minute, but giving you a, sort of an early spoiler alert, the credibility of Jesus's ministry, the credibility of the thing that allows him to fulfill and be who he is, is his obedience to walk through the gate of, of death. Um, verse 3, he says, The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, being the shepherd, and then the sheep listen to his voice. And you think about Jesus walking on the path to the cross and doing that out of obedience to the Father, who I think would be the gatekeeper in this analogy. And he opens the way and sends him through the gate. Um, and he says, The sheep listen to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and then he leads them out. Jesus is presenting this as, as a picture of reality where he, as the shepherd, speaks to his sheep. He calls them by name, and then he leads them out of the pen, I would presume, into the green pastures to eat. Um, and, and when he's talking about calling these sheep by name, I really think Jesus is talking about identity, you know, who we are. When you would talk about somebody's name in Scripture, the, the, es the, the name referred to the essence of who somebody is. And we see that reality in this idea that, uh, you know, different ones of us in here have different names. And if I wanted to get the attention of different ones of you, I would, I would, the, the easiest, you know, default for that would just be to say your name. And then it can be a little confusing when there's more than one, you know, Tyler in the room or something like that. But, 
the name is really tied to our unique identity. Oftentimes when we are trying to get to know somebody and we're politely asking exploratory questions about them, though, we'll ask things like, what, what do they do? You know, what do you do for a living? And, and in our culture, that's, there's so much value in what we do for a living. We don't want to get confused and begin to think about that as our identity. You know, I might say James is a pastor, but, but hopefully everybody knows there's a lot more to me than my nine to five. Uh, it's not really a nine to five, but whatever it is, uh, six to 12 on Sundays only, um, you know, <laughs> that's not an identity. That's a vocation. Well, oftentimes we use other words to describe who people are. You know, I, I'm an American or, or I'm a trailblazers fan. And of course that's talking about my people. That's talking about the people who are around me, which is a part of identity. But I love this idea of the shepherd knowing the sheep. And calling them by name, speaking to the deepest essence of who they are. And talking about their identity, the core of who they are. You know, um, this, the, the word for church in the New Testament is the ecclesia. It's a, it's a Greek word that's essentially saying those who are called out. And so we're seeing another weaving in of that theme of that there is a God who is calling out to his creation. And the church is those who recognize I've been called out. I'm responding to the voice of God in my life and I've been called out and I'm moving with him in this story of redemption. The story of the fall in uh, in uh, Genesis, back in Genesis, you know, Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking in the garden and they're hiding in the forest and God calls out to them. You know, the foundation of our identity as believers is, is found in Christ's death on the cross. That you say, who am I at the core of who I am? As a follower of Christ, I know that who I am, if it's nothing else, it's someone who's worth dying for. I'm someone who the creator of the universe said, you have value that is immeasurable. And I am willing to give my very life to ensure that your destiny will be with me and not separate from me. I think in the end, a healthy sense of identity is something that we really can begin to develop in this kind of a space, a space where you're around the people of God and they're reminding you time and again that you're someone who's worth dying for. They're reminding you that you have value, not just for the professional services you provide for society or the people that you hang out with, but you have value in yourself. Because of who God has created you to be. On some level it can be shaped in this. But then there's this other level that's deeply personal. Highly subjective. And it's that idea of the voice of God shaping your identity in your life. And this is really hard to talk about. Because most of us experience that voice in very different ways. And yet Jesus says. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. He calls them by name. And they go out. So some part of our experience is meant to be this element of hearing the voice of God, recognizing his voice and responding to it. He continues in verse four, he says, when he's brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize 
the stranger's voice. Before we can go out with a shepherd, we have to learn to recognize his voice. We have to know when he's calling us by name, which means we have to recognize our own name when it's said by him. We need to have that sense of identity. And then we have to be able to recognize when he's calling us and speaking to us. You know, the, the way that you can learn to recognize voices is when you have spent time listening to them. And I think probably the, one of the hardest things about following Jesus today is not all of the cultural compromises that, you know, are happening and, and all of the people around us who just aren't doing it right. Like, the, the hardest part is that our minds and our lives are saturated with so much stimuli that it's really hard to hear from an invisible God whose voice is described as a whisper of the wind. It's really hard for us to, to determine and decipher when it is God speaking to us amidst all of the noise that we live in. And of all the spiritual disciplines that you could adopt in your life, I really think that the one that you need to spend more time in is finding a way to enter a silent place in the presence of God and just listen. Be still and know that he is God. I'll jump off that soapbox to continue reading verse 6. So Jesus used this figure of speech, John writes, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was talking about. So Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Now I'm even more confused. He's the shepherd or he's the gate? It says, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out. They'll find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So before the sheep can go out, they need to know their name. They need to recognize the shepherd's voice. And before they can go out on their own, they have, they have to go through the gate. They have to know who the gate is. And then... This is a little confusing. You know, I can see why the Pharisees are confused because I'm a little confused too. Is he the gate or is he the shepherd? And, and I, I would say yes. Yes, he is. He is. He's the gate and he's the shepherd. And if you're going to follow Jesus and if you're going to, to try to get revelation from God from this ancient book, you really have to become comfortable with some of these paradox, some of these seeming contradictions, some of these things that just feel a little bit too great for our natural minds to grasp because all this is is the attempt to bring an infinite God into the language that you can understand and your understanding and the limits of your language are are uh, really restrictive when it comes to that exercise Jesus says I am the gate and he says I am the shepherd and to enter the fullness of who you are being called to be you need to walk through him there's a way that this goes through his work and through him, there's a way that he mediates it like a gate. And you also need to walk with him like sheep following a shepherd. To be the fullness of who we are, we just have to sort of embrace embrace both sides of that. Verse 11, he continues, says, I'm the good shepherd. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd. He does not own the sheep. And so when he sees a wolf coming, 
he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The hired hand runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Any of you ever work at a job where you are doing something and then you realize, I'm not getting paid enough for this? And maybe if you're, yeah, thanks for your honesty, Jess, raising her hand. She works at the church, so it's great. Um, she's not getting paid enough for this. Um, what carries you through those moments, right? It's not the paycheck. It's not the hired hand. It's when you have, if, you, if, you, if you've owned the work that you're doing, if you're doing it for a greater cause, then you keep doing it, right? If you're just there for a paycheck, then you find a new way to get a paycheck really fast. You're like, I am not, I'm not getting paid enough for this. Um, the shepherd's legitimacy is revealed in the fact that he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. I mean, every now and then, you know, you have the thought like, you know, where does God get off saying I am the way? Like, you have to do it my way. Like, what, what, how can he be so full of himself that he would do that? His legitimacy is revealed in the fact that he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. When he says, I am the way or I am the gate, this is the only way you got to go through the garage despite the mess. When he says that, it's backed up by the fact that he says, I am not going to withhold any good thing from you. I would even lay down my very life. Let there be no doubt about my legitimacy as the shepherd of your life because I would give anything for you. He continues, says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. What we know about this shepherd begins to tell us something about the way, something about the gate, something about where we started talking about this way back to redemption. How do we get back to that place where we're living in the garden with God, cultivating his world and infusing it with goodness? The shepherd who lays down his life invites his followers to do likewise. The shepherd goes through us, through that necessary gate, and then he invites us, beckons us, come follow me. There is a way back to the fullness of Eden, and it, it's not flying to the Middle East and looking for the gate that the cherubim are, are guarding. Like, that's not the way back. The way back is the same way that Jesus overcame sin and death himself. And that was through his death on the cross. We know that we will find fullness, we will find victory when we join him in that venture. We also know that victory isn't just promised to us one day. I mean, on the one hand, the fact that God, you know, cut us off from the tree of life when we fell, prevented us from being stuck in this state, living apart from his presence forever. And we know on, on the one hand, for us, death is, is an opportunity for us to finally be free of the brokenness of this world. And that's a hope that we hold on to for our own death and certainly a hope that we hold on to for those who have passed on before us. But we also know from the teaching of Scripture that death isn't just about the date when your physical body expires, but that Jesus is inviting his sheep to follow him in death today. The book of Hebrews quotes the psalmist saying that today when you hear his voice, 
Don't harden your hearts. And the invitation comes out to us in Matthew 16. Jesus says, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Because whoever wants to save their life is going to lose it. But whoever, uh, sorry, whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is a hard saying. So, so much of our cultural life is about insulating ourselves from pain and, and prolonging as, as humanly possible the inevitability of death. And yet our Savior invites us to embrace these things. He said these things, these words to his disciples in Matthew 16. He said this at a time when he uh, is telling his disciples about how he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer and he must die. And in fact, it's so uh, shaking for them in the moment. The apostle Peter pulls him aside and it's like, you can't be saying this stuff. It's hard for human beings to grasp this idea, the paradox of the gospel that that we gain life by dying to ourselves, that, that we gain more by giving away, you know, by all natural metrics, these kinds of things just don't make sense to us. But in the kingdom, in the way God has designed the world to work, they make all the sense in the world. So as the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice, as they hear the shepherd call their name and they go through the gate, they're willing to follow him, take up their cross and follow him. As they do that, they're promised to they will be led into the pastures the Lord has laid out for them. We are able through that pathway to stumble into the truth that Jesus proclaimed. That he came that we might have life and have it to the full. There's a renowned anthropologist uh, named Mel Gibson who said at one time that all men die, but not all men truly live. Would have been nice if he'd have used more inclusive in that, right, ladies? Am I right? Come on, Mel. The point of it being, though, do you want to live your life? Or do you want to really live your life? And he was talking about making a sacrifice for a cause that was greater than themselves. Inviting the Scots to to take up arms and fight for their freedom because this life of slavery just doesn't cut it. Inviting people to lay down their lives so that their fellow sons of Scotland could be free. Death is the gate that we're all going to walk through one day. But for those who are willing to die early, for those who are willing to take up their cross every day, then death represents this unique freedom that we're allowed to live in. It invites us today to begin to experience the reality of that garden-type living where we're in fellowship with God and we're infusing the world with His goodness. This is the, the grace of God at work in our world, that through Christ's death, our own death would become something of freedom rather than the end of the story. What seemed like part of the curse, you know, the, the part of the judgment in Genesis chapter 3, that we're cut off from that tree of eternal life, it actually becomes the doorway to our freedom. This is the beautiful way of how God sort of does this work of redemption. All the things that seem bad, all the things that seem terrible, all the things that seem like a deal breaker, 
end up being his pathway for redeeming people and bringing them back to himself. We started off talking about uh, the sound of God walking in the garden and the fear that humanity found from that. And then there's this story, this scene in Scripture where somebody hears the sound of God walking in the garden again. It's 10 chapters forward in the book of John, in John chapter 20. Mary has come to the tomb. She's found it empty. She's unsure of what all of this means. And then she encounters Jesus in the garden and thinks he's the gardener. She's a mess that day. She's lost her savior a few days before her friend, seen him publicly murdered. She comes to anoint his body for burial, finds the tomb empty. Angel shows up, tells her not to worry, but, you know, how comforting is that when (laughs) everything that you see right now looks like a mess? And this person shows up. She thinks he's the gardener, and she's asking him, where's the body? What's going on? And she doesn't understand. And then there's this moment when he speaks her name. And she hears the shepherd's voice speak her name. And her eyes are open to the reality of what's really happening here. And her fear and her uncertainty and her anxiety just melts away. And she's in a moment of unbelievable joy in the presence of her Savior. He sends her out to tell the disciples to go and tell the world about this wondrous thing that God has done. My prayer for you is that you would have a moment like that. You'd have many moments like that. Your life would be an ongoing story of moments like that. Where you hear the sound of God moving close and you don't shrink away in fear, but you recognize him for who he is and what he's done. And then you would have moments where, like Mary, you hear him speak your name. You connect to him on that deep personal level in the core of who you are that only you can experience. You'd hear him call your name, and then you would receive his invitation to come and follow him. And whatever sacrifices, whatever things it costs you to follow Jesus, you would lay those things down joyfully, knowing that this is the way that we are, this is the only way that we can truly live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your voice. I'm sure there are some of us who feel confident in our hearing of your voice. There are others who may feel a a high degree of uncertainty in that. But scripture teaches us that you are a God who speaks to his people. And we just want to embrace that reality today. We don't have to fully understand it to, to just say, Lord, If that's the reality you present to us, then would you open our ears to hear your voice? I pray that this week that we would have experiences where you would uh, speak through the noise, you would cut through the clutter, and uh, we would just hear that invitation to follow you. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the way that you're working in our world and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.